For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. By the time writer Donovan X. Ramsey was about four or five, he'd learned a word that could stop people in their tracks, a slur that could win an argument or put an end to a bully's wrath. The term was crackhead, and growing up in the 90s, they were seen as pariahs, both feared and ignored. Who are these people besides addicts, Ramsey's young mind wondered, and what led them to crack cocaine in the first place? Decades later, Donovan X. Ramsey examines the destruction of the crack cocaine era through the experiences of addicts, drug dealers, families, and community members. His new book is called When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Donovan X. Ramsey is a journalist, an author whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Ebony, and Essence. He's been a staff reporter at The Los Angeles Times, News One, and The Griot, and has served as an editor at The Marshall Project and Complex. Donovan, welcome to Fresh Air. Hey, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. So you start off this book writing about a woman named Michelle, who was a crack addict who lived down the street from you growing up in Columbus, Ohio. And you know, this story is so familiar to me and really anyone who grew up in a city ravaged by the crack cocaine epidemic. Everybody seemed to have a Michelle on their block, which kind of makes it surprising that a book like this hadn't been written already. Why did you want to write about it now? Yeah, um... I wanted to write this book for lots of big, grand reasons that have to do with, you know, understanding our criminal justice system or that have to do with, you know, trying to kind of set the record straight about the period. But really, I also just wanted to get to know this kind of mythical figure, Michelle from down the street, better. Um, Hmm. I remember... You know, my mom, you know, kind of whispering on the phone to her girlfriends, you know, dragging that um, house phone with the long cord room to room Mm -hmm. and, you know, complaining about this woman down the street that had people coming in and out of her house at all hours. Or, you know, sometimes people would come knocking on our door thinking that they were, you know, looking for Michelle and thinking that maybe she lived there. And that was quite, you know, scary and disturbing to my mom, who was a young single mom. And, um, you know, but also at night, you know, I I would lay in bed and like clockwork, you know, once Michelle got to, you know, her her activities, she would always put on uh, a Patti LaBelle record and she would play the song If Only You Knew on a loop. And, you know, the lyrics are like seared in my head. You know, Patti's like, um, you know, you don't even suspect could probably care less about the changes I'm going through. And, you know, in my little, you know, five-year-old heart, I could tell that she was really in pain. Mm. And, you know, as, like, time went on and she really disappeared from our neighborhood, I just never stopped wondering about what exactly it was that she was going through. You know, most people of a certain age know this already, but maybe we should first explain what crack actually is. There's this misconception that crack and cocaine are actually different. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, crack is a drug. It's really a substance that completely upended our society for a while. It, you know, launched, um, you know, a new phase in the war on drugs. It created lots of myths and, you know, stereotypes about black people in urban centers. But it is no different from powder cocaine, which has, you know, existed um, for really time memorial, this idea of um, taking something like coca leaves and, you know, ingesting it to get a sort of uh, stimulant experience. But um, its original name was freebase. And Mm. that was a chemical term used, the process of making it smokable, which is separating the base of the cocaine compound from its other elements, which then makes it smokable. Um, Mm. That sounds kind of scientific and, (laughs) you know, and um, kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but I would liken it for anybody that has, you know, experimented with marijuana. It's like the difference between eating an edible or smoking a joint. It's the same thing. It's the manner, right? Exactly. It's, it's, It's the same exact substance, you know, but it's a different process and it, you know, your body breaks it down differently, which then spurred different uh, patterns of use. So someone mm-hmm. who is smoking crack gets a very intense cocaine high, that, but it's short-lived, which means that it's more likely something that you would binge than powder cocaine. Some of what you wanted to get answers to are first, the facts of the crack epidemic free, of the stigma and the speculation around it. There's so much of that. And two, who we were, meaning the black community before crack. Was that a challenge for you to parse it out for yourself? It was. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm sure that maybe you can relate to this, but as a black journalist, you know, you all, and especially if you do work around black communities, they are the questions that you know, you know, the sort of average reader in middle America, you know, whatever, you know, whoever that is, uh, the things that they want answered, but also the questions that you have for yourself. And for me, being a, a black man who was born in 1987, the crack epidemic predates me, right? Like, I've never existed in a world where crack didn't exist. So I had this real kind of deep yearning to understand who we were before and to fill in what felt like a gap in between the civil rights movement that we, you know, hear so much about and where we are today. And the and the crack epidemic seemed like that missing link, right? How do you go from the highs of the March on Washington to, you know, Freddie Gray being, you know, tossed around in the back of a police transport vehicle? How do yeah. you go from the highs of, you know, um, the Voting Rights Act to so much of the other devastation that we see today in the system that we have. And um, and the crack epidemic was that missing link. Did you feel that disconnect growing up, too? Because I, I think I felt that way, too. You put language to it, but you were learning all about these wonderful things that happened, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. It all seemed so very kumbaya-like in the late 60s, early 70s. And then you're sitting right in the thick of the crack cocaine epidemic and seeing all of this devastation around you. Was that kind of going through your mind even growing up and learning about the history? It was. I mean, I, it, it <laughs> it's so hard to put this into words, but like when you're like a black child in America, you're getting lots of 
mixed messages. You're getting an official history that has been sanitized completely of um, uh, any sort of dissident, you know, perspectives that you know exist within your community, right? So for every Martin Luther King Jr., there is a Malcolm X in your neighborhood. You know, when you go to the barbershop, there are people who are like, let's, you know, cast our bucket down where we stand and, and work hard and, you know, figure out a way to make our lives better in this capitalist system. And there are the guys that are like, let's let's burn it all down, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they're not all represented in the history that you get. Beyond that, when it came to something like what was happening with crack, I could never really get straight answers. So, uh, you know, when I say that, what I mean is that the, the news presented super predators and crack babies and crack heads and crack houses and this, um, you know, uh, apocalyptic view of neighborhoods like mine. And then when I actually walked around the neighborhood, you know, I saw people working hard. I saw a mix of working class and poor and middle class black people. Um, You know, I saw lots of different perspectives on what was happening. Um, I should also note, though, that people didn't necessarily explain anything to me, you know, Mm -hmm. that I was witnessing. But my mother, you know, God God bless her, really uh, shielded my sisters and I and, um, and, and protected us from what was happening. You know, her favorite um, thing to say was, you know, mind your business, <laughs> right. you know, turn your head. Uh, you know, if something was happening that, you know, wasn't, um, you know, didn't directly involve us. It was kind of just keep your head down. There are several conspiracy theories about how crack cocaine actually made its way into black communities in the most Enduring theory is that the government had something to do with it. You actually investigated and interrogated this idea. And what did you find? You know, in black communities, you know, as you're growing up, people will tell you crack was dropped off in our neighborhoods to disrupt them. That, you know, to the average black person, it seems, you know, that crack was a mystery where it came from. Why us? You know, why did this happen to us in this way? I should start by saying, right, that it didn't just happen to us. Like anything else in American life, that that the majority of the folks that used crack were white because the majority of Americans are white, but that Black and Latino folks did use it at disproportionate rates. And our neighborhoods became sites where it was sold. So then you had another level of disruption beyond the use in terms of the dealing and then the violence that accompanied the dealing and ultimately the policing that was a response to it. So first I want to say that. Right. But there was this time period where, especially during the Reagan era, we had already been introduced to the war on drugs from the Nixon administration. But then there is um, really the solidifying of that through the Reagan era. And so at the same time as we're receiving messages and of cracking down on drugs and drug use, um, we were also seeing this infiltration of crack cocaine in communities of color. You actually found that there was kind of a couple of things that were happening at the same time. Not exactly that it was purposely left in black or brought to black communities, but that there was kind of a turning away. Yes. Yeah. That's a that's the perfect way to put it is that the government in the 80s 
was aware that there was, re- I mean, really just tons of cocaine being shipped into the United States from, um, you know, South and Central America. And we had um, ongoing efforts in South and Central America in countries like Nicaragua, where we wanted to support rebels um, known as Contras in Nicaragua um, to overthrow their government, that that was in our, you know, political interest. Um, but Congress would not allow the U.S. government to fund a war in another country. So the U.S. government got creative, and, you know, this is well documented through, um, you know, programs to actually deliver weapons to the Contras. And when that was no longer uh, uh, feasible, when that became exposed through um, Ali North and the whole Iran-Contra affair, um, that we just allowed them to smuggle drugs. And so a lot of the a lot of those drugs, cocaine, ended up in the United States. And, um, you know, this has been investigated by uh, a commission led by John Kerry, by efforts led by Maxine Waters. You know, it's well documented through um, reporting at the time that there were, you know, lots of Contras that were selling cocaine to dealers in the United States. And a lot of it ended up in cities on the West Coast and in Oakland and in Los Angeles. But then how cocaine then turned into crack was kind of a story of ingenuity. It was. You know, like any time there's a glut of a substance or a commodity, right, that's like available, people start experimenting with, you know, other ways to consume and distribute it. And crack was no different. Um, I, you know, did tons of interviewing and I was able to come up with, you know, about five or six different sources that told me the stories of these um, students at Berkeley who were chemistry students that were just cocaine enthusiasts and they were trying to figure out different ways to consume it. And they really popularized, you know, Freebase in their community. And it became so popular that there was a book that was published that you can actually find on eBay and Amazon called The Pleasures of Cocaine. And it included the recipe for how to create free-based cocaine, not with volatile chemicals like ether or, you know, alcohol, but with water and baking soda. Um, And once that book got around and it spread to different drug enthusiasts in different cities, and then it ultimately made its way to, um, you know, dealers, what, what it created was a super cheap, accessible way of getting what had been a very glamorous drug um, into the world. And it just spread like wildfire. I should say on this question, right, of like a conspiracy, what I ultimately determined is that there was no group of, you know, shadowy figures that sat in a room and said, here's how we can destroy black communities, at least not in the 80s. Um, That the reality is that the way that black communities are situated, what it means to be black, in this society is to be hit first and worst that like the COVID pandemic, which we saw. Yeah, exactly. Like, like COVID, like, like Katrina, like, like any other disaster that, you know, blackness is, you know, more than just like this racial category and about identity. It's about where you are positioned in terms of harm in a society. So if blackness is, you know, blackness is this buffer that allows whiteness to be an area for, for safety and for comfort. So when something like crack becomes, you know, widely available and a problem, we will be hit first and worst. 
And that's exactly what happened. To make matters worse, the government decided, you know, or at least politicians decided that they wanted to build careers on then criminalizing, you know, this sort of public health emergency. And that's the part that I think really gets to ill intent and um, racist ideas and efforts to really be disruptive was not necessarily the drug epidemic, but the response to it. At first, when crack cocaine made its way to the streets, it felt kind of like, as you put it, a gold rush for Black communities, a chance for people who lived in poverty to actually gain some wealth, to get rich. What did that look like? I hadn't really considered this when I set out to write the book because, you know, in my family, drug dealers had really kind of always been villainized. You know, even though I had relatives that sold drugs, we you know, that there was distance between, you know, at least, you know, my my mom and sisters and, and me and them. And, you know, what it looked like for the average, usually young man, someone like Sean McRae, who I write about in my book, is that you saw people who had walked holes in their shoes, whose, you know, families struggled to pay the rent, be able to provide, you know, basic necessities, to have some you know, piece of what maybe felt like the American dream. Not most drug dealers got rich, right? That like not most were kingpins. Most were able... media portrayed them as these really wealthy guys who lived in these big homes, lots of cars, lots of stacks of money. Right. That was more rare than actually portrayed. Exactly. Or as super predators who were, you know, out to get, you know, kids hooked on drugs and who were eager to get into gun battles in the middle of streets, that most of them were terrified for their lives, but it was really the only way that they could make money in a period where unemployment was so high and, you know, black youth unemployment was was even higher. And anybody that's been a, a black teenager trying to find a job understands just how frustrating that can be and, you know, how kids want things more than anybody else. I was actually really struck by something you wrote about the media that we were consuming in the early 80s, especially, that played a part in Black kids' desire and imagination about wealth. You write, popular culture was obsessed with wealth and upward mobility. Black children were presented almost exclusively with media that encouraged them to transcend the ghetto and reach toward whiteness. And the drug trade was one way to do that. But what got me was your astute observation about the entertainment we were consuming at the time. So shows like Different Strokes and Give Me a Break and Benson. I had never really put that together, what those shows were actually setting the scene for in our desires. Oh, it's so wild to look back on because, I mean, none of it will fly today. But, you know, it was a period where in television... Basically, it's just show after show of black person being snatched out of the ghetto and then moving in with a white family, whether it's Webster or uh, Different Strokes or Give Me a Break. And um, I mean, really one after the other. Uh, Mm. Even the Jeffersons, right, is about moving on up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are a black kid growing up in the ghetto, what looks like a real healthy American life is so far away and so unattainable. And then overnight, there's this substance now that's available that you can sell and you'll make more money than you could have ever imagined. 
Our guest today is Donovan X. Ramsey, journalist and author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. Crystals painted pure and white, a multi million dollars almost overnight. Twice as sweet as sugar, twice as bitter as salt. And if you get hooked, baby, it's nobody else's fault, so don't do it. care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Baldonado of Fresh Air. And if you're a Fresh Air Plus supporter, you might have heard Fresh Air's own Dave Davies talking about baseball. First base is a collision point. The first baseman gets there, puts his foot on the bag and extends his glove to the field. And so that throw is coming in from the fielder, but the runner is coming pell-mell for first, and they're both going to converge right there at first base. And you got to move to catch that throw, and you could easily collide with the runner. Do you think about that much? We talk about his favorite baseball-related interviews, he's done a bunch of them, and Fresh Air in general. Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes take you behind the scenes with Dave, Terry, and more. We listen to interviews from our 40-plus year archive and add context and color all exclusively for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. If you aren't a supporter yet, you could be. Learn more at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and my guest today is journalist and author Donovan X. Ramsey, author of When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Donovan, you paint this roadmap of how policy informed the way we view drugs, from Richard Nixon's war on drugs to Ronald Reagan's promise of a drug-free America to George H.W. Bush's tough-on-crack efforts. And you tell this history that I almost forgot about when— the first Bush administration had this plan to unveil their anti-drug program on national television by holding up a bag of crack. Can you remind us briefly of what happened there? Sure. Yeah. Um, George 
H.W. Bush um, really wanted to start his administration with a bang and, you know, being tough on crime and um, was a big part of that. So his office made a decision that they wanted to give a big address on drugs and they wanted to use crack cocaine as a prop. So they, you know, thought, well, naturally, you know, crack is this big, you know, kind of scary thing that's everywhere. We can just go outside the White House and get some crack. And they uh, discovered that they couldn't, right, that there was tons of, you know, police presence around the White House and that, you know. um, It was harder than they thought, right? Yes. So what they did was they created a scenario. They um, um, really entrapped a teenager um, into selling them them drugs, Um, a kid who, who didn't even know where the White House was, sadly, somebody that grew up in D.C., and when he was told to come to the White House for the drop, was like, where is that? You know, he had to be directed to to a park near the White House that was more familiar. And, you know, they ultimately made the arrest. They got the crack. And, you know, then the president was on national TV saying, you know, here's crack secured just in front of the White House. It's it's that ubiquitous, um, you know, and it's and it's coming for you. And, you know, it's a symbol of the the propaganda that surrounded the crack era that created a real panic that did more than just make people aware. It also, you know, um, worked to demonize um, drug dealers and also addicts. You know, I think about as far back as Reagan with the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. Um, you know, the the Reagans are tricky, right? Because they, you know, on one hand are pushing really draconian policies that that come to life um, in, you know, a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. But they also are pushing really effective media messaging, you know, having both been actors and Ronald Reagan, you know, run um, several actors unions and, you know, known folks in marketing um, that they helped to fund the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, which produced lots of those really memorable commercials. Um, like the scrambled Those PSA egg. ads, yes. Right. This is your brain on drugs. And, um, you know, and there also was a, a real campaign to ask um, Hollywood directors and writers to send their scripts to the White House for approval, ways of working in um, anti-drug really? messaging. So, yeah, yeah, so, you know, this is how you get Nancy Reagan on an episode of Different Strokes. Um, this is, you know, how you get Jesse on Saved by the Bell saying, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared because she's, you know, hopped up on on speed. On amphetamines, right. Yep. Yes. Yep. That, you know, this is the birth of the very special episode. Um, and, you know, we have them to to thank for that. And, you know, sadly, you know, I'm look like I'm a kid of the 80s. I remember so much of that messaging. And it really, you know, more than taught me any, because it it didn't really teach me anything useful about drugs. What it really did was just made me deathly afraid of drug addicts. Mm -hmm. It made me keep people who I even suspected of being drug addicts, right? The average, you know, houseless person on the street so far away from me because I was terrified that they were just these zombies that were out to get me and to get me hooked, you know, on drugs. It made them untouchables, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something because I think that many people will, will try to credit Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign and D.A.R.E. and all that stuff 
for ending the drug epidemic um, or, or, or the crack epidemic. There's no evidence of that. Um, but I do think there's lots of evidence that it really, um, that the propaganda made us not understand addiction in ways that we're still paying for. Yeah, this propaganda, it included movies and music. It also included journalism. And one of the more well-known pieces of journalism was this investigative report about an eight-year-old third-generation addict published in the Washington Post, and it was called Jimmy's World. It was so popular that when it was published, it was then republished in papers throughout the country, and it resonated so deeply with readers that even Nancy Reagan spoke about it. The only problem is that it wasn't true. The reporter made it up. Yeah. Now, Tanya, had you known about this story before you read it? I only knew about it because I read about it like five years ago. But no, I didn't know about it in the moment. I didn't yeah. know about it when it was published. It is. It, it's so wild, right, that, you know, even us as as black journalists, uh, a lot of people don't know that that Janet Cook is the only person to ever give back a Pulitzer. And that the story that won this Pulitzer was Jimmy's World. It was a complete fabrication about a nine-year-old heroin addict that was published in the Washington Post. It ran on the front page um, with illustrations, of course, because there were no photos. Um, It was published under the leadership of Bob Woodward, who, um, you know, is a journalism icon and, and legend. And what you see when you peel back the layers of Jimmy's World is a real willingness, really a, a, a eagerness, I should say, to tell a story like this. To tell a story of a nine-year-old heroin addict in D.C. who lives in a shooting gallery, who is the product of a incestuous relationship between his grandfather and his mother, whose stepfather shoots him up whenever he gets a little too rambunctious. The details were wild. Absolutely wild. And, you know, black reporters at the Post at the time said, do not publish this. This is completely made up. It doesn't sound right that we've been in these communities. We've never heard of a Jimmy. Um, You know, Janet Cook, who was the reporter, could not produce um, uh, any additional information about about Jimmy or about his family. When she drove other reporters around to find the house that he supposedly lived in, she couldn't find it. Um, and then ultimately, right, because they couldn't, the Post decided to run illustrations based on her uh, recollections of Jimmy. Um, as somebody that has worked in a metro section of a newspaper, <laughs> this is um, highly unlikely, right, like on like a procedural level of how the right. news is made. But lots of corners were cut because the story mapped so well onto notions of black pathology because people wanted it to be true, to be right, honest. Right, because you basically say, I mean, it, it represents something else, the country's appetite for stories about black suffering. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that suffering hasn't, I mean, that sort of appetite hasn't changed, I don't think. That, you know, um, I've been in lots of um, editorial meetings where people are willing to say the wildest things about black people and to entertain the wildest notions about black people and, um, and, and like otherwise smart people, right? Like otherwise smart journalists will 
suspend their 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 rational thought if a story seems um, um, good in that way, and and they're often too. I I don't want to say too good to be true. They're often too messed up to be true. One of the biggest instances of misinformation spread by mainstream media during that time was also the myth of the crack baby. I actually remember my ninth grade algebra teacher talking almost every week about how he had to retire within a few years because that's when the crack babies would be entering high school. I mean, we've talked about this quite a bit over the years, but we now know that the fears about black babies never really, um, black crack babies never really materialized. But you write about how that myth impacted all black children, including you, in your education growing up. Absolutely. That um, a researcher named Ira Chasnov in Chicago did one study of a handful of uh, black mothers who were cocaine users. And what he found um, after those uh, mothers had, had given birth was that uh, many of their babies had things like tremors and low birth weight, and they sort of um, struggled to meet benchmarks, you know, in their infancy. And from that, he published a report about cocaine-exposed babies that then launched what became this crack baby notion. And, you know, lots of reporting was done about these irredeemable babies, mostly black and Latino children, and how they were going to be a huge weight on society, that they would sort of never be able to um, come back from from what their mothers had done to them. Charles Krautheimer, um, a columnist who was writing for the Post at the time, said that that death would have been more suitable for these babies than to actually live. And what we've seen um, through the research, um, longitudinal studies of of cocaine exposed babies, was that one, the symptoms that Chasnoff were seeing were actually related to premature birth. That um, that the effect of cocaine is that it can cause complications that then lead to that lead to premature birth, and that the tremors and the developmental things that were being seen in infancy were actually associated with the babies being born early and not necessarily with the cocaine exposure. And then, you know, decades later, there is no measurable difference between those children and and their counterparts, children born at the same time, raised in the same areas, you know, with the same sort of resources. Um, so I say that to say that the crack baby myth has been debunked. Debunked, but, yeah. For me, as a black child growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was treated as though I was a suspect of, of you know, of, of being a crack baby. That, you know, the ways that teachers um, treated me and, and really other um, black children in, in my classes, mainly black boys, was as though there was something fundamentally wrong with us, that we needed to be maybe medicated to be able to be in class, or that any um, challenge that we presented as students, whether it was talking too much, which was my problem, um, or, you know, if it was not being able to sit still, that that was evidence that something was wrong with us. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Donovan X. Ramsey, author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era 
where Ramsey explores the history of the crack epidemic and the people who live through it. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This message comes from Wondery. For a masterclass on innovation and creativity, listen to How I Built This, where host Guy Raz talks to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. Listen to How I Built This, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. This is Fresh Air, and today we're talking to Donovan Ramsey, journalist and author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Ramsey is a journalist and author whose work has appeared in various publications, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, and Ebony. He's a former staff reporter at the Los Angeles Times, News One, and The Griot. Donovan, how did the crack epidemic end? You know, the crack epidemic ended, um, you know, not because the drug warriors rode in on white horses or because Nancy Reagan said, just say no. The crack epidemic ended because the next cohort of young people who um, would have used crack looked around at their communities and saw the devastation and said, you know, not for me. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to underline is that, one, that we, that the crack epidemic is over. You know, we didn't celebrate that. So let's celebrate the fact that the crack epidemic is over. Let's celebrate the fact that we survived it without a whole lot of intervention from the government and that it was young people who who made the decision to not continue the trend. Um, you know, and that's not according to me. That's according to research by the Department of Justice, where they surveyed um, the, the hardest hit cities around the country and interviewed young people and said, essentially, you know, why, why aren't you doing crack? And mm. they said, you know, it's, it, 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 that like that whole world is too scary. Um, mm-hmm. so what you see, you know, when you look at the stats is a rise in crack use starting about 1982, 1983. Um, it completely takes off about 1987. It then, um, plateaus between 1990, which is really the hardest years of the crack epidemic, and 1992. And as a really interesting um, kind of aside, um, you know, throughout my research, um, you know, writing and writing the book, I listened to a lot of hip hop at the time. Yeah. And I came across this, I mean, this litany of anti-crack messaging um, you know, Jane Stopped This Crazy Thing by MC Shan and Hey Young World by Slick Rick. 
um, Night of the Living Bass Heads by Public Enemy. I mean, song after song. Dope Man by What about Your Mama's on Crack Rock? Your Mama's on Crack Rock by the the boys, I think. Yeah. Uh, An absolute wild song, right, where you have, I mean, in a really interesting way, right, like um, young people from these communities giving messaging back to other young people from these communities. And I think it was more powerful than what Nancy Reagan was doing on different strokes. It had it had more credibility. Um, you know, you also see it in the filmmaking of the time, what I would call kind of hip-hop filmmaking. Um, you know, films like uh, Boys in the Hood. Um, I would even say Clockers. Jungle Fever. Jungle yep. Fever, right? Samuel Jackson is Gator in Jungle Fever scared the mess out of me. You know, he's mm-hmm. like still in his mama's color TV to get high. Yep. Or uh, New Jack City, Chris Rock is Pookie, yeah. you know. Um, and so then what you see is this decline in 1992, just a complete plummet where black and Latino youth are not using not only cocaine, but I mean, stopped using hard drugs almost entirely. But during that year, you see a huge spike in marijuana use among those groups. And that happens to be, I just want to say, the year that Dr. Dre dropped the chronic. Mm. And so the which music is, is so powerful. Yes. It's so powerful. And, you know, um, at the time, you know, rappers would say that they were just representing what was happening in the streets. And I always thought that was like a little bit of a cop out. I'm going to be honest. I was like, you know, it, it, it just Why? sounded too, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it, it just sounded too convenient. And I knew that there was, you know, this mix, right, of of, of messaging But what I will say is that despite the fact that there was some really unsavory, misogynistic, mainly violent uh, messaging in hip hop, the position on crack was consistent, which is that's not cool to do. And it's having a terrible effect in our community. One of the things that you're pushing for in this book is ending the mandatory minimum sentencing for federal drug offenses. I was really surprised to learn that this is something that, that we're still talking about. There's a difference in uh, crack sentencing versus cocaine and other drugs. We really owe it to the folks that survived the crack epidemic and the folks that didn't to get right when it comes to drugs and addiction in America, that we missed the opportunity in the 80s and 90s. And then we kind of turned away because it happened to those people over there. And, you know, now we're seeing it come back to, to, to new populations. But, you know, we still live with the residue of the crack era, that, that we still live with this dragnet that we created, that we just applied across communities of color. And, you know, today, that's all that we have, you know, in terms of, of, of real policy, um, when it comes to trying to put out something like the fire of of uh, a drug epidemic. So I would love to see the end of the mandatory minimums that came about during the crack era, which basically take away the discretion from judges when it comes to um, possession charges. It says, you know, basically you do the crime, you have to do X, Y, Z time. And, you know, doesn't allow judges to be able to use their discernment to determine maybe who should go to jail for decades and who shouldn't. Also want to see an end to this disparity 
um, that you mentioned between sentencing for crack and powder cocaine. Um, it was originally 100 to 1, meaning that um, you got essentially 100 times the amount of time for crack than you would for the same substance in, in powder form. Um, under Barack Obama and um, Eric Holder as his attorney general, that was reduced to 18 to 1 um, around 2010, but it still exists. With mm-hmm. all that we know about crack, with all the compassion that we have now for, for addicts, we still haven't moved far enough to eliminate that disparity entirely. Our guest today is Donovan X. Ramsey, journalist and author of the new book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. These days, it can feel like the news is fighting for your attention wherever you turn, but staying informed shouldn't be a battle. Everything you need to navigate the stories that matter to you is at your fingertips. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download the NPR app in your app store today, or you can go to npr.org slash app. Trials in multiple states, state and federal charges, plea deals, witness testimony, gag orders. The trials of former President Trump are really hard to keep straight. And that's why we created Trump's Trials, a weekly podcast where we break down the biggest news from each of his legal cases and what it all means for democracy in about 15 minutes. I'm Scott Detrow. Listen to Trump's Trials from NPR. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. You know, it was so deeply rewarding to see these experiences written on a page that not long ago society didn't really think were stories worth being told. But I also had to take a lot of breaks reading this book because it was also very triggering to me. And I read that it was the same for you in writing it. It was. I have, you know, in covering Black America, I've you know also had to cover a lot of tragedy and, you know, hear a lot of traumatic things from people. And I'd always prided myself on being able to kind of like, you know, alchemize it, you know, to kind of take it in and to process it and turn it into something um, beautiful and meaningful and not be affected. Um, But after five years of putting together this book, I was completely wrecked. Um, I lost 40 pounds. Um, I had a heart tremor where I had to wear, a, I, was, I was getting palpitations and um, had to wear a heart monitor. Um, every loud noise scared me. Um, I mean, my like nerves were completely shot. And I realized, well, you know, first I, I, I didn't know what was going on. You know, of course it can't be this book that I'm writing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, um, right. you know, like maybe I'm just dying. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had to take seriously what had happened. And what had happened to the people that I talked to and how seriously impactful those events were in their lives and how, you know, the stuff that I went through impacted me. I was, you know, a kid having to get down on the ground when I heard gunshots. And that was just a a normal thing. You know, you're in the middle of play. 
you hear gunshots, you get on the ground, you get back up and you keep playing. Um, you know, having my first bike stolen by a crack addict and the fear of having to go home and explain that to my mom that I had, you know, given somebody my bike to fix and he never came back with it, that that stuff lived in me and it needed to be excavated. Um, I want to say that I'm that I'm doing much better now, including having gained the weight back, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think the message from that for me is that lots of us that lived through that period, we still have some stuff that we have to deal with. You know, we need to ask our, um, you know, family about that aunt or uncle who kind of disappeared and nobody talks about. We need to... Um, honor those people and lift up, first learn their stories, then lift their stories up as a part of our stories and that we won't heal until we make sense of the crack epidemic, not as this aside, but as a part of who we've been and what we've been through. Well, Donovan X. Ramsey, I think you did a good job. Thank you for this book. Thank you for bringing language to a time period and an experience that so many people um, experience and are living with. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. It's been such a pleasure. Donovan X. Ramsey is the author of When Crack Was King, a people's history of a misunderstood era. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Bea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Former President Trump is in serious legal trouble. And at the same time, he wants his old job back. It's a really big story, but with different trials in multiple states, with plea deals, testimony, gag orders, it's also really hard to follow. So we created Trump's Trials, a new NPR podcast where we break down the big news from each case and talk about what it means for democracy in weekly episodes. I'm Scott Detrow. Check out Trump's Trials from NPR. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts.